I'm Nate Herbst. And I'm Ron Martin. And we are so glad that you're tuned into The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. So let's get started today, Nate. This week, we're going to be talking about naturalism. And Nate, you studied the natural sciences in your degree in college. Why don't you just start and tell us, uh, what's the working definition of naturalism? Well, naturalism would be a naturalistic perspective on this universe, which would be uncovered through science or discovered through science. And obviously, there are benefits to that. Modern science has done a lot of good. We have great medicine. We have great engineering. We have come to a place where we can control our environment and protect ourselves and feed ourselves in a way that no species in the history of this world has been able to do. So there are some benefits to the scientific method or the scientific process. Hmm. But naturalism as an ideology, where it goes from strict science to the ideology of stating that the natural world around us is all there is to the universe, and everything you see has to be explained from that reference point, is a mistake. Hmm. And it would be a mistake for me to try and come up with a naturalistic mechanism for the existence of my car sitting outside. There is no naturalistic mechanism. It required an intelligent designer. So if I were to come up with some precondition where I said you can only use natural processes to define the existence of that car, that would be a problem from the start. True science is open to all the options and all the data wherever they lead us. We don't start with preconceived conclusions. That's a great way of putting it. Anytime we add those three letters to the end of a word of ISM or ISM, we turn a working model of something that functions into a worldview. When it comes to naturalism, though, as a worldview, what do you see the, the limitations to the natural sciences as we know them and appreciate them and use them? Well, I think that naturalism has tremendous limitations. Naturalism cannot tell me whether or not I love my wife or whether or not Abraham Lincoln truly was one of our presidents. Naturalism cannot tell me a lot of different things about the universe. It has very, very specific limitations. So naturalism is limited from the onset. Science is a valid way of acquiring information about our universe, but it can only tell us what is readily accessible to our five senses, it reminds me of uh, reading Immanuel Kant in his distinction between what we call the phenomenal world and the noumenal world. His point was that we can only discover the phenomenon of our world through our five senses. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, we can make no definitive statement, either pro or con, about the noumenal world, the spiritual world, the supernatural world, however you describe it. But he also realized that that didn't prevent us from theorizing knowing and even experiencing the noumenal world. He encouraged us to go there, but he knew the limitation of the five senses in terms of understanding our world as a whole. And based on that, he wouldn't consider himself a naturalist in the purest sense of the word. With that in mind, Nate, how would you answer the question, is naturalism sufficient to answer the question of how our world came to be, how our universe came to be, and how life came to be in that universe? The first thing that we need to think about is if naturalism were the only answer, and if it were the truth and reality of our universe, then evolution would have to be true, and we'd have to see that in an evidential way in the universe. And the first place that I would look would be the fossil record. That would be a great first place to look and see, is there evidence that what we see today, especially as far as life is concerned, arose through purely natural processes? And if it did, 
can we see the transitions? Darwin acknowledged the problem of the fossil record in The Origin of the Species in chapter 10. He wrote, Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. And this perhaps is the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory. So right from the start, he realized that the fossil record would be a big problem unless further evidence was uncovered. Well, that evidence has not been uncovered. In fact, there's been a lot of evidence uncovered that has done the theory a lot of damage. Mm. And we do not find the gradual transition from species to species that would be required in the fossil record if everything we saw here arose through an evolutionary process. Right now, there might be somewhere around 100 million species on this planet. And that is probably somewhere around 1% of the total number of species that have existed over all time. If you were to take that number of about 10 billion species wow. and the transitions between each of those, the fossil record would have to be completely full of not just tens, not just hundreds, not just thousands, not just millions, but literally billions of transitional species. And whenever I have this discussion or whenever we've debated this in a public arena, the most examples I ever get are one or two examples, examples that you might see in a textbook of horse evolution, so to say. What those really are are just fossil examples of species ranging from small to large, which look similar to each other, which are extrapolated to be a transition from one species to another. But in reality, we cannot make that extrapolation. Regardless, we only have a few examples of that kind of thing. And if evolution were true, and if we looked in the fossil record, we would see literally billions of those types of examples, and we just don't see it. If we look at the human species, most of the transitions that we've all seen in the textbooks are extremely vague. In fact, most of those skeletal remains involve literally a couple fragments of a couple bones from the organism. And from that, they are extrapolated into entire organisms and then placed into this long series of transitions when we really don't even know what they were in the first place. And we could go through each of those and look at all the different details, but we really don't have time to do that here. So I want to mention a few quotes. Richard Leakey, in a 1990 PBS interview, stated, If pressed about man's ancestry, I would have to unequivocally say that all we have is a huge question mark. To date, there has been nothing found to truthfully purport as a transitional species to man, including Lucy, since 1470 was as old and probably older. If further pressed, I would have to state that there is more evidence to suggest an abrupt arrival of man rather than a gradual process of evolving. Stephen Jay Gould, probably the most famous evolutionist since Darwin, also mentioned, all paleontologists know that the fossil record contains precious little in the way of intermediate forms. Transitions between major groups are characteristically abrupt. So there you hear it from some of the foremost experts in this field. The fossil record does not have what we would expect to see if evolution literally were true. So is that the difference between what's called microevolution and macroevolution? Well, macroevolution is literally the evolution from species to species, while microevolution is genetic change within a species that already exists. Hmm. Nate, what would you say drives evolutionary theory? Uh, we hear so much about it, but we also hear polls that people really resist it on, on a broad base, not just religious people, but non-religious people, people in the community that talk about this, there's there's a huge amount of resistance to this idea. Why do you think 
evolution is taught so heavily, uh, almost religiously, mm -hmm. ironically. Uh, why do you think that is? And is it okay for people to look at it and say, I'm just not buying this? And why aren't they buying it? Well, I think part of it, part of the answer is the lack of science in the scientific world concerning this issue. And a lot of times we'll see tricks, and nobody likes to be tricked. Hmm. A lot of times we'll see tricks like uh, referring to microevolution by calling it evolution, mm -hmm. seeing natural selection, and then defining that as quote-unquote evolution. There was an article in the paper just a couple weeks ago, and it said evolution on speed. And it was talking about some fish that had developed a resistance to some of the pollution that was being dumped into that lake. And they said that these fish had evolved in a matter of a couple decades. Well, the hmm. average person understands that's not the case. What had happened is the weaker members of that species had been eliminated, and the members that had always had the immunity to that pollutant had multiplied, and therefore their offspring, just like them, were immune to that pollutant. Hmm. So no real change occurred. It was just a shift within the gene pool that already existed in that species. So a lot of times when people hear stories like that, you don't have to be too intelligent to realize, I'm getting tricked, <laughs> and I don't like it. The other thing is when people have valid questions, they're oftentimes not answered. And hmm. I would bring these questions up with all my science professors that brought up the topic of evolution, and I never had one even attempt to answer these questions. Hmm. Literally, most of them would usually say, that's really interesting. Somebody else might have better answers, but I've never heard all this stuff before. And some other ones would take a more hostile approach and dock you a letter grade. In fact, I did have one bio professor dock me a letter grade because of my stance on this position. Wow. So anyway, I think when you see lack of answers and when you see kind of shenanigans going on with definitions like that, calling something evolution that everybody knows is not, we develop a little bit of a doubt about what they're trying to make us believe. And I think that's happened kind of across society. Mm, yeah, interesting. I find it so interesting, and I think it, it creates a genuine question in people's mind of what is the real truth here? Where's mm -hmm. the agenda versus real science? So let me ask you this. If there were fossil evidence, what would we need to conclude from that evidence that that evidence arose from purely naturalistic means? You talked about mechanism before. Tell us a little bit about the mechanism of evolution and what we would need to determine that evolutionary mechanism is actually there. The mechanism that is purported for evolution is natural selection. Mm -hmm. And natural selection is as real as anything around you. A stronger member of a species is going to survive in a specific climate or environment over a weaker member of the species that is more in danger in that environment. It's kind of like if you put a population of mice into a brown house and the population was 90% white and 10% brown. And then you introduce a cat into that environment. The population is going to shift from 90% white to 100% brown in no time at all because hmm. the cat will quickly see the white mice where the brown mice will blend in with their environment. So that's what we call natural selection. But it's a shift within genes that are already there. The brown mice and the white mice are both mice. There's no new species that evolves out of that situation. So what we need is a mechanism that is confirmed through the scientific method that is valid for the evolution from species to species or for macroevolution, like you mentioned a minute ago. Hmm. And we just don't have that mechanism. Scientists 
try to say that mutations would provide the genetic change that natural selection can work on to produce a new species. But the reality of that is non-existent. We mm. just don't see that happening. I know people, whenever I mention this or discuss this, they'll bring up unique examples, kind of like in the fossil situation, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. an E. coli bacterium that now metabolizes citrate that didn't before. In situations like that, we don't see actual evolution occurring, but rather in that case specifically, there was a gene mutation that reduced information that was already there. So it wasn't an evolution at all, but it was a deletion. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting that they do not have examples of natural selection working on mutation to produce actual change. And in fact, Stephen Jay Gould mentioned it this way. He said, the theory of evolution by gradual mutation, exactly what we're talking about, is effectively dead despite its persistence as textbook orthodoxy. You could look at that in Paleobiology, Volume 6, 1980, page 120. Wow, it's quite a statement from someone of his stature, huh? Mm -hmm. If you are just tuning in, this is KDUR 91.9, 93.9 FM in Durango, and we're glad you're with us. We are talking about naturalism and evolution can evolution explain where life originated from? If naturalism was true, we would have to see a natural explanation for the existence of life and how it came from a non-life situation or environment. And we just don't see that. This is what scientists call abiogenesis. And hmm. people refer back to the Miller-Urea experiment of the early 1950s where certain organic molecules and amino acids were formed in an environment similar to what they hypothesized the primordial soup or early earth conditions would have been like. So let's say you did get some organic molecules or some amino acids. There's still a huge problem with that situation. Amino acids on their own are not life and they're not a cell. They have to organize themselves into, first of all, some kind of RNA or DNA and then from there into a cell that actually can reproduce itself. The simplest cell ever known in existence had about 500,000 nucleotide base pairs. Now, if we were to give them a simpler cell, let's say something as simple as 100,000 nucleotide base pairs were possible. There's no evidence that such a thing even is possible. But if it was, you'd still need those 100,000 nucleotides to arrange themselves in order. Now, the probability of that happening out of a solution where all those components were present okay. is 1 in 10 to the 37,000th power. Phenomenal, huh? Wow. If somebody told you those statistics for anything else, you'd say, nope, not going to happen. And I think a scientist with integrity would agree. Hmm. Now, here's the problem. The universal probability bound is an estimate of the number of chemical interactions that have happened between all the atoms and molecules in the universe over 15 billion years. That universal probability bound is somewhere around 10 to the 150th, all right? So for something to be statistically possible, it would have to be less than 1 in 10 to the 150th power, right? Mm. So when we see this being 1 in 10 to the 37,000th power and realize that that is 250 times statistical impossibility, we realize this would never happen. And that's just to get your first simple DNA or RNA strand. Mm. Uh, if we were to get the first cell, the, the statistics would be 1 in 10 to the 112,000th power. Again, this is 750 times the universal probability bound. So basically, no sane scientist alive would say that this could possibly happen. 
Hmm. And anybody that tells you this could happen is believing by faith in the theory of evolution a lot more than any Christian or religious <laughs> person ever has in their theory. And I, I guess that becomes my question. You know, I hear people like Richard Dawkins, who is a respected scientist who works in this field uh, very aggressively and has done amazing work, uh, certainly as a skeptic of any kind of supernatural influence or supernatural reality outside our own physical reality. So what he says, basically, is all we do is keep adding more time to this. If we just keep adding time to this formula, what would happen to the probability factor? Well, first of all, the time issue is irrelevant as far as abiogenesis. The time issue would be relevant in their domain as far as the magnitude of biodiversity that we see on this planet. If evolution were true, it would take a whole lot of time to produce this many different species. Interesting note on that, though. If we go back to the Cambrian explosion, mm -hmm. at that time, every phylum present today was also present then. And we've actually had a reduction of phyla since then. So biodiversity has somehow narrowed and become less since that time. But regardless of that issue, time wouldn't play into the whole abiogenesis question or how life arose from non-life. That mm. is simply chemistry. And if it's impossible chemically, it's impossible chemically. Mm. And whenever I bring this up in a debate, the atheists always charge, you're basing everything on the God of the gaps. I often tell them, well, you're trying to base it on the naturalism of the gaps. Look, science doesn't have an answer. And if science yep. doesn't have an answer, a true scientist can't just say, oh, it could happen. That's not science. That's faith. And faith is exactly what they're accusing us of. It's fascinating. Uh, you know, philosophically, we're never afraid to go to the point of faith, of saying that there's a mechanism or a power or a source that we don't see with our five senses. In fact, we welcome that source. It always boils down to th this idea that we've mentioned before of in order for anything to be, something must have the power of being. And... When we take natural laws and turn them into naturalism as a worldview, we're imposing by faith some kind of power and of being to that naturalistic view, but we see no mechanism that allows for it. We mm -hmm. see no power that can bring it about. There's no real answer there. And I find that always fascinating on that sense. So I guess, Nate, the question then becomes, aside from the origin of life, what about the bigger question of cosmology and where does matter come from in all of this picture? How does naturalism address that issue and where do we go from there? Aside from the issue of life, there has to have been design. If naturalism is a valid worldview, there would have, have to have been a natural explanation for the existence of design and information. And in fact, the very laws that evolutionists claim drove abiogenesis and then from there drove the rest of evolution, those laws are intricately designed and mm. very unique and specific. Mm. There would have to be an explanation for where that design and where that information came from in the first place, not just an assumption that it's always been there. Mm. Because we know at the very start of the universe, which we're going to get to in just a second here, those laws were not just violated, but they were created, right? Before matter, there were not laws that govern matter. Einstein put it this way, everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that a spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, a spirit vastly superior to that of man, and one in the face of which we, with our modest powers, must feel humble. So there you have it, the greatest scientist of all history, telling us that when we see the design in the universe, 
we have to conclude that there is a designer and a greater spirit behind that design. But even beyond the design issue, we come face to face with the matter issue. Hmm. Where did all this stuff come from? Right. We know it's all here. Where did it come from? And this is a big problem for atheists and those that don't believe in God. Hmm. Matter had to come from somewhere. You could think of it this way. The first law of thermodynamics says that matter and energy cannot be created or destroyed, right? And so if matter is here and I don't believe in a supernatural cause of this matter, I have to conclude that matter is eternal, Hmm. right? Now that creates a bigger problem, though, and that's the second law of thermodynamics, which states that all matter is going towards entropy and disorder. Now, we look around the room right here. We see microphones and we see walls and we see a computer. We know that there is still order present in the matter in this universe, Hmm. which means that matter is not eternal, right? Entropy has not gone to infinity. So we know there was a starting point to this universe. And that's also been proven through science in what we would call the Big Bang. The Big Bang is the scientific reality that the universe had a beginning, that matter had a beginning, that the laws that govern matter had a beginning. Mm. And Einstein, as a matter of fact, even when he first started coming to this conclusion, he was so terrified by the implications that this had, that there would be a God that created all this matter, that he came up with the cosmological constant (laughs) to kind of work his way out of believing that the universe had a starting point. He later called that the biggest mistake of his career. And he came to agree that, yes, there was a God, or at least in his mind, there was a greater power that created all this stuff. And so when we look at the question, there's a huge problem. First of all, if naturalism is valid, And if atheism is valid, there would have to be a fossil record full of transitional species. Even if there was and there's not, you would have to have a mechanism by which that diversity or biodiversity occurred. And we don't have that mechanism, at least not a scientifically confirmable mechanism. But even if they had that, they would have to have a scientifically valid description for the origin of life from non-life. Again, that is statistically and chemically impossible. Even if they had that, they would have to explain for the origin of design and information in the universe, which they, again, can't do. And even if they had all four of those, they would still have to come up with a definition or an explanation for the existence of matter, which they, again, cannot do. Which leaves me with the conclusion and leaves you with the conclusion that there had to be a supernatural outside force driving the creation of matter the establishment of design information in the laws of nature, Hmm. the origin of life, and then from there, the mechanism of biodiversity. So that brings us back to God. You know, it's fascinating. Even in the area of philosophy, we come to a very similar conclusion. Rene Descartes sat down one afternoon and he began to doubt everything that he knew. He even doubted that he was living in the real world. And in that state of doubt, he came to a conclusion that said, in order for me to even be sitting here thinking, one of three things has to be true. Either I have been here forever, and he knew that wasn't the case, or I have to be self-created, and he knew that wasn't the case, because you can't create yourself when you weren't. Then he said, I have to be created by something greater than myself. And that was his working definition of God, something outside the natural world of his own existence, his own thought that created him so that he could think. And that was his famous statement, I think, therefore I am. 
And his further conclusion was, I am because God has made me to think. Mm -hmm. So what we see in the naturalism of our of our society today is they want to appreciate and enjoy the natural sciences. But when they turn that into a worldview, they're faced with the same question. Either the universe has always been here or it's self-created, which means there was a time that it wasn't. So how could it create itself? Or it was created by something outside those natural laws that now currently govern it. Mm -hmm. And like you said, that's what we call theism, the idea that there is a God who, outside of time and space as we know it, outside of power limitations as we know, him, know them, exists in a real, intelligible, rational being with the power to call material being into reality. That's really the simplest form of Christian theism is to say that this God is personal and real and powerful and actually communicates with us through that mechanism of sciences that we see all around us. These laws and these principles that we utilize for our own comfort and our own utility, that they come from a rational, loving God who communicates with us. So then I guess the, the wrap up question to all this would be, how do we know about God and what would it look like if we were to enter into communion or communication or fellowship with this God? Well, I think we would have to know that God through some type of revelation greater than ourselves. Because mm -hmm. like we just mentioned, our five senses only get us so far. And as Christians, we believe, and I believe with very good evidence, that the Bible is that revelation. When you look at the Bible... It is historically accurate. It is prophetically accurate. It is scientifically accurate. In fact, the Big Bang, expansion of the universe, mm. the second law of thermodynamics and entropy, a lot of what we just talked about is mentioned in the Bible. So when we look at the Bible, we see a message from the creator of this universe himself telling us that he desires to be in relationship with us, that he loves us with an unconditional, everlasting love, mm. and that we as humans have gone far astray of him. We've done things our own way. And in fact, the Bible says that that is what is called sin and that that sin separates me from a perfect God. And just logically, perfect cannot incorporate imperfect and still be perfect. Mm -hmm. So there's a big problem there. If I want to have that fellowship with God, uh, I somehow have to get from imperfect to perfect. Now, I've tried. <laughs> Ron, have you tried? <laughs> I've tried. <laughs> and I've never been able to get there, which is bad news in itself, but there's also some great news. And the great news is that Jesus himself, God in human flesh, came and lived a perfect life and died for me and you, paid for all of our sins. The Bible literally says he nailed those sins to the cross. Hmm. And then by his death, we can have peace with God, not because of my works, not because I'm perfect, thank God, because I'm not, but simply because he paid the ultimate price himself. And then each one of us is left with this decision to make. The Bible says that we can decide to put our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ. And then at the second I put my trust in him and receive him as my Savior and Lord, asking him to come into my life and forgive my sins, the Bible says I become his child at that point. Mm. And I'm guaranteed an eternity with him in heaven. Again, not because I earned it, but simply because he paid for it. Wow, that's uh, an amazing thought, isn't it? That we live in a in a world that gives us so much but doesn't satisfy our spiritual longings to be close to that God who created our world and created us. Thanks, Nate. This has been a yeah. fascinating discussion. We hope it's been encouraging to all of you. 
and we encourage questions, uh, dialogue with anybody who would want to want to discuss this further. Uh, Nate, how would they go about getting feedback to us? You could log on to eternityimpact.blogspot.com. Again, that's eternityimpact.blogspot.com, and leave comments, listen to this show, listen to our previous shows. So that'd be one way to get in touch with us. You could always email or call the radio station as well. And if you were really impacted by this conversation today, if it really hit you, and you'd like to explore more, I'd encourage you to come to Connect this week. Connect is every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. in the Student Life Center, room 119, right here on campus. And it's a meeting that we do for college students up here. And if you're not a college student, or if you are, we'd also like to encourage you to check out a local church. And a good local church that also coincidentally this week meets on campus is Matthew's House. And they are a local fellowship that will accept you where you're at and encourage you in your walk with God, regardless of where you're coming from. They meet at Noble Hall, room 130, right here at Fort Lewis College. That's Noble Hall 130. And they meet Sundays at 6 p.m. So if you'd like to give them a shot, go ahead and uh, and tell them that we sent you. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks, Nate. Uh, my name is Ron Martin. And I'm Nate Herbst. And we will hear you all next week. I've got a stronger God.